It's Thursday, the 28th of June, 2018, and you're listening to Amusing Ourselves to Death. Cam, what's happening? Hey, how are you doing? Not bad. Uh, the things that we're going to be talking about today are universities, San Gima, and the way in which he's affecting all of that. Climate, lots of revolving door corruption, etc. You know how we do. Heathrow. Heathrow. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got some exclusives here on this, actually, because obviously no one ever talks about the stuff that we're talking about. <laughs> but um, yeah, some full-on conflicts of interest going on that I haven't seen mentioned anywhere else. Mm. So, um, and yeah, we'll promote the stuff that we've got coming out next week. David White video talking about revolving door regulation, Piper Alpha, Grenfell corruption. It's going to be a good one. Yeah, it was, yeah. Uh, we're just trying to work out what to put in for our little bits of promo for that. So... Universities. Mm. What's going on with that? So, we've talked about Sam Gima before, the university's minister. Last time we talked about him, he was bringing in a new criteria that you couldn't stop at the platforming of speakers, and this seemed to point to the platforming of fascists. Uh, this week, there's been two new announcements by him, one, one after the other. The first one yesterday was his brilliant new idea for students and dun 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 it's a money supermarket for universities a money supermarket for universities and that's to help students yes okay so more choice more freedom so you really know what you're getting so a student is a consumer mm. who's decided to study a course at university and then where does this money supermarket fit in please cam <laughs> well i guess this comes on it's the kind of culmination of what's been happening over the last few years, right? So Joe Johnson, who was university's minister before Sam, was pushing the knowledge economy. So this was the transformation of university students into uh, into customers, into consumers. And along with that, you've brought in a very aggressive and profit-seeking accommodation market. And now his I mean, it feels like a bit of an anti-climax, this money supermarket, the way he announced it was kind of, this is going to be brilliant. Um, but we've done some previous work on universities, and actually I'm kind of glad this has come up because we can talk about this. We haven't done it before. But there's a reason why you can't pick a university like you can pick your cereal. And this is something we talked to Steve Keen about, which you can watch on the um, Real Media YouTube. Basically, the way that you consume a university is not the same as you consume a cereal or some other kind of product that someone could market to you, right? You can't, this is, it's like the same with housing or the same with your healthcare, right? These are things you rely on, that they have a huge impact on your life. They're not just kind of consumer products. Um, and you have no way of knowing what the difference is between the kind of universities, because if you then turn them into marketing models where they're just showing you their best side, uh, that's got nothing necessarily to do with what you're going to be able to take away from that education. And um, this is something that Steve talks about. Again, I would definitely recommend this, this interview. But the second announcement that he's made this week was today, and that was to do with making mental health a top priority for students. You must have heard some of the problems that we've... That, have kind of been coming around in terms of mental health for students. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you've been saying that, um, or other people that we've interviewed have been saying that um, the amount of debt mm. that a student gets into 
affects everything about the way in which they their their life at university and afterwards. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's some figures out that say one in four students are looking for or on a waiting list for counselling. Um, 95 students took their own life up to the year up to July 2017. I think that's like 4.7 students for every 100,000 students. And Sam Gimer's come out and said, we're going to tackle mental health. Now, he is doing this through the recommendations of the Student Minds organization, which sounds like a pretty decent organization. These are recommendations by them. But it is funded by uh, an organization, a charity called the UPP Foundation. Does that sound very familiar to you, the UPP? Yeah, I remember seeing their name when we were doing the research for a film into student accommodation. Yeah. So in 2016, again, you can watch this on our channel, the Rent Strike film. We went to UCL and did a kind of 10-minute report on what was happening there to do with their rent strikes. And it was largely to do with UPP, who are one of the biggest providers of student accommodation in the UK. And the UPP Foundation is... They are the sole funders of this charity, and this charity is now funding this mental health um, uh, kind of pro- yeah, my mental health program. Um, so, we should probably talk a little bit more about UPP because what we found out in that film was that yes, this is one of the biggest accommodation providers. It's gone into long-term contracts with about sixteen universities, over thirty-five thousand kind of flats or, or rental spaces. So this is a big, big player. And what we found out when we were doing that research is that they are funneling this money out to their shareholders, who include a Dutch pension fund and the People's Bank of China. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the Dutch pension fund, that's a long-term investment and totally understandable mm. in a capitalist world. Do you think there's anything weird, though, there? Because it's um, funding Dutch people's pensions through the debt of young people in the UK. Well, I like the way you put that. I mean, if you're going to think about things in terms of aesthetics, <laughs> if you are if you have a pension, you've got to invest it. Mm-hmm. You've got to have it invested. And if the best opportunity is student accommodation, that's where you're going to put it. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's not just Dutch pensions. It's obviously millions of other people's pensions that are being in there. So that is how the system works. The Chinese central bank, though, I remember just thinking, ah, okay, so I think the US central bank is the biggest money printing machine in the world. And the next one is probably the Chinese one and then the European central bank. Mm. So it's interesting that they are making investments and that the investments that they're making, of all of the places that they could get a return of their money, they ended up investing in UK accommodation. Mm. Of course, most of the people are overseas students. Yeah. I would think. There was a a really good piece that came out this year in the Financial Times by someone called Thomas Hale, and it was about the financing of student accommodation, and he went into depth uh, with UPP and Swansea University. And there they have a 45-year lease um, on property, and they basically provide the accommodation, look after it, and Swansea just needs to fill those spaces, except he talks us through these very complex deals um, you know, involves special purpose vehicles and apparently UPP is funding this largely through debt itself. And what it creates is that Swansea now has to fill these spaces to avoid paying for those spaces. So they're really working for that company now to make sure that they meet 
the targets that they want to meet. And also it means that you're locked into this for 45 years. <laughs> for 45 years, this company is now reliant on student maintenance loans. Um, and, you know, there's all sorts of things that could happen and change in those years. Uh, so, yeah, a really good piece. You should check that out. But so as well as um, the UPP funding this mental health program, what we researched in that film was that they're also connected to Policy Connect, which is a think tank where John Wakeford, who... Um, used to work at PP, UPP, he works there. And he was also, that Policy Connect runs the Higher Education Commission. Now, this is like a lobbying group. And they've been found to be lobbying the government before for higher loans and stricter enforcement of debt collection. Well, I remember in the Queen's speech, I can't remember if it was 2016, probably 2016, maybe late 2015, when the Queen's speech happened, um, the language that they were using with regard to universities was exactly the same as the higher education commissions mm. to do with student experience to do with taking it from 9,000 to 9,250 mm. and I think they really wanted to yeah I think they did they lifted the cap so they said that you could um, charge whatever you wanted for universities yeah. and make it easier for anyone to set up a university too. And of course the accommodation the costs of that are also spiraling so at UCL the average I think the price for a place in the new Bloomsbury Halls that they were building was 9250 That's a lot of money. <laughs> well, I think what's also interesting is that right now house prices are going down mm. in this um, environment at the moment. And so it would be interesting to see the difference between what happens with the student market in terms of private accommodation and what happens in terms of what normal rents are outside. Because yeah. it could well be that normal rents actually go down as exactly. we enter into... Because it does look as though and they do actually want... desirable. Yeah, it looks like they want us to go into some kind of a deflationary spiral. I mean, Jacob Rees-Mogg, he talks about uh, food, clothes and footwear mm. becoming more affordable for you and your children. So um, that's... Chlorinated chicken is 20% cheaper, according to the Adam Smith Institute. Yeah, so if all of that stuff starts going down, then... Um, yeah, so that's... Um, and in these leases, they the prices are tacked to inflation. So, yeah, if the private sector is more desirable now for students to go into, you know, where does that leave the university who's tied into this long-term deal? So, you know, explaining all of that, what we're trying to say, what I'm trying to say, is that you have this organisation who's really extracting money from the university sector, from the higher education sector, under this privatisation, under this marketization, under this turning students into consumers. And they are now also going to be funding the mental health programme. Now, look, I need to say... Okay, uh, oh, you're not about to apologise for something, <laughs> no, no, are no, no, you? No, no, I'm just You're not going to give us a caveat. The, 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 I was listening UPP to you and I believed you. <laughs> the UPP Foundation says that it's independent and says that it's uh, trustees and all that are, are you know, separate and, and all this. But in a sense, is it also in the interest of the of, of UPP to get students to have enough mental health together to be able to pay back some of those loans? So there's a there's a kind of like, it's also in their interest to be like, they need to be well enough to, uh, to work a job to pay us back because there's a huge kind of deficit in the, the money that's being paid back in terms of student loans. And we talked to Andrew McGettigan about that. Okay, well, we'll leave the student loans out because <laughs> UPPE, they're not dependent on this. They're not the student loan company. They're, they're dependent on the maintenance loans being paid to students to pay for the accommodation, right? So they're, they're involved in that infrastructure. Yeah, sure. But I think the deal is 
there's a total separation between the student loan company and the accommodation crew. Mm. And I think the accommodation crew, but I mean, I, basically your point is good yeah. in the sense that they, uh, for me, I think that, so UPP, it's an acronym, right? Yeah, University At, Partnerships Programme, sorry. Yeah, it's an acronym. Up top. Yeah, but what I wanted to say is it's an acronym. And when you talk about Swansea 45 years, all I hear is the language of PFI. And yeah. when I looked at the history of UPP, I noticed that. So a university is a big building. It's infrastructure. Uh, infrastructure, there is a company that was born of the Bank of England hmm. and Barclays. And Barclays, yeah. That was called 3i. 3i is a famous private equity company. And um, who happened to run 3i for quite a few years? Sarah Hogg who was in charge of the number 10 policy unit for John Major and is a mother of Charlotte Hogg, who was the chief operating officer for the Bank of England and then afterwards lost her job because she didn't declare that her brother was a director at Barclays. Yeah. Somebody told me the other day that another thing that was probably didn't look great was the fact that Barclays have been participating in the entire QE system that the uh, Bank of England were doing at the same time. So, you know, they're getting very, very cheap money mm. off the Bank of England whilst... Um, you know, and all this kind of stuff. So I don't know what her brother was doing, but anyway, she lost her job. Yeah. Um, and it's the language of PFI. So when you find out that Swansea are being put into debt, just like students are, by um, UPP, mm. so then you can see the domino. And this is financialization. Yeah. So the domino effect happens. And I like to think of it as the domino of anxiety. Uh, I mean, it's not as though every single time somebody borrows money from somebody else that it's completely unsustainable. Yeah. But there's a certain point, and this is a philosophical thing, but it's to do with statistics um, and what you believe is possible. There's a certain point where it's a usurious loan. You know, it's just too much for someone to be mm. able to afford compared to what other people are doing uh, in similar circumstances. So some banks are taking money really, really cheap. Yeah. So when interest rates were low, it was just half a percent. The banks were getting it for nothing, basically, but they were lending it out at so much more. And I think the point is, if you can find somebody who uh, doesn't have a great credit rating, then you just charge them more. And the system for getting credit ratings for different universities, it's a bit like with the councils and stuff like that. It's just a kind of, it's a slightly Wild Westy sort of thing, mm. where Cambridge University would have a AAA rating, uh, De Montfort not so high, Manchester quite high. Mm -hmm. Apparently UCL, London University is having loads of problems. Anyway, that whole world is there and it goes on. And, and Will Davis, he was talking about how yeah. when he teaches um, at, at Goldsmiths, when he teaches students, he can just feel um, the, the anxiety that the debt is bringing to them. Mm. This is also linked to another story that came out this week. Reform, a centre-right think tank, has said that the universities are issuing too many firsts. Um, and... This was also, again, something that Steve Keen brought up, which is that when you turn students into consumers, suddenly they're demanding a product and they're going to demand that they get their higher grades that they've paid for. Um, so this this is talking about grade inflation, right? But also on the side of the teachers, there was a great comment made under Sam Gimmier's announcement, which was that, can you not see that the mental health of students and teachers is massively connected to the money supermarket style commercialization and financialization of higher education. Now, when we talked to, to Will Davies, he was talking about the teaching excellence framework and the research excellence framework and the ranking system that's become really, really, really important over the last few years and how this um, 
it also kind of, yeah, he also mentioned that it's students as well because they have these student engagement surveys which are to do with how much are you on campus, how much are you reading books, how much are you in the library, and that involves loads of surveillance. So you have all Data, these, surveillance. Yeah. Just by the way, um, I didn't want to cut you up too early, but um, when you were talking about money supermarket, I don't think it was that clear what the money supermarket thing is. Oh, so you can from, compare. From, yeah. from, what, from what I understand, and again, I understand nothing because I just looked at the tweet, <laughs> Um, but I think Gimia or Gima was saying that he was selling the data. He might have said share, mm. but he was basically saying, I'm giving the students data away. And possibly that means that then afterwards, somewhere along the line, people are going to make them offers about where they can borrow money, something like that. Oh, I'm not wow. sure. But I mean, uh, the data was involved in data yeah, sharing. Yeah, yeah. And if students are consumers, then he's basically saying, I'm either labeling you, depending on how much money your parents make or what course you're on, mm. That's those are going to be the factors that are going to decide who then lends you money. And if you're at the bottom row, Ardhar style, we'll, you know, we'll lend you cheap. No, we don't think you're likely to pay it back, so we'll lend you less money for a very high interest rate. Yeah. And if you're near the top, then we'll lend you for cheaper mm. and we'll lend you more for and, longer. And this is... This was exactly the actually reinforcing the prophecy of, of uh, uh, middle classness. McGettigan said in the future... Andrew McGettigan, author of The Great University Gamble, yeah. He said that in the future you'll be able, they'll be able to tell that this kid from this part of the country with who went to this school and studied this, with these parents, with this income, I mean, he went through the lot, this is how much we will lend them because this is how much we think we're going to get back. So that is what Andrew McGettigan says is the end game in all of this. You know what this reminds me of? Um, and excuse me for being somewhat left field. <laughs> One of our friends did a Freedom of Information report uh, uh, request to the police mm. and um, he got some of their manuals and then afterwards found out uh, the different fields in their database and one of them was accent. Oh, yeah. Right, yeah. And um, there's, uh, you, you will have heard of the film My Fair Lady and... Uh, the book that it's based on the play is a Pygmalion, but it's all about a linguist, um, a phoneticist, I think, or a phonologist. Yeah. And there's that line where he says that as soon as an Englishman walks into a room and opens his mouth, another Englishman despises him because of the whole accent thing and everything mm. like that. And so when you tell me about Magetigan, saying yeah. you're going to be able to say, you know, it used to be when you open your mouth, people will say that's where you're from, that's how much money you've got, blah, blah, blah. Now it's going to be when they can look at the data look at where they went to university, where they're from, blah, 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 then you can just track that person's life mm. in terms of how much. And I suppose that's quite scary in terms of what the opportunities that get narrowed down immediately based on the judgments. And these, you've told me before, these models aren't always correct or fair. No. They make mistakes. Yeah. And there's massive difficulty in correcting those things. But yeah, again, Andrew McGettigan is on the Real Media YouTube all of those things. I hate to say that we were a bit ahead of head of the uh, news on this one, but it's definitely good stuff to check out. Well, you shouldn't. Don't. Um, I think unashamedly, <laughs> just say we're way ahead of the game. Way ahead of the game. <laughs> um, yeah, Andrew. I've actually been studying some of his courses, and uh, we had the last one on Tuesday. This was on probability, I think. Um, but he brings quite a lot into that, and um, he told me also about a man called Dan Davis. And I'm going to lobby you, Cam, uh, so that we can f interview this guy. He's got a book. Hey, sounds great. I'm already following him. <laughs> what, Dan Davis? Yeah. Oh, did you know him already? Okay, yeah. So he's got a book coming out called How to Get Away with Financial Fraud. I did not hear about this, though. Yeah, it came, well, the article's today and the book's not out yet. But, um, yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to interview Richard Brooks as well, um, if he answers the phone. <laughs> um, right. Raging Richard Brooks. Yeah, so... Um, 
moving on from the whole, so when you were talking about Swansea and uh, the 45 years of debt and all that kind of stuff, and mm. it, it feels like it's a, a PFI deal. So we're talking about bonds. Universities have bonds. And this will move me smoothly into the next topic. Uh, we overran in the last one. So um, climate bonds. Last week, uh, so yes, people, we're talking about financialization of nature here um, and kind of a paper market in fraud. Green, Philip Hammond at the Mansion House speech in the middle of last week, he said, we have set up a new green finance initiative. Uh, the City of London is going to launch climate bonds, green bonds in seven currencies, essentially to finance God knows what. Some I don't know if he said green projects or something like that. Mm. Um, what Possibly what David Cameron used to call green crap. But either way, it was fascinating to hear him basically say, as a financial post-Brexit hub, the UK will participate pioneering-wise in the fintech green finance mm. future initiative. There's a new, um, there's going to be a, an event coming soon called Mainstreaming Green Finance, blah, 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 blah. And at the same time, just a couple of days later, they announced Heathrow. Mm. So third runway. So that's a European hub for um, flights. So we're going to be a hub for polluting and a hub for <laughs> green finance, which is like bonds that Take last 70 pollution. years. Yeah. And so if it's pension funds that buy the green bonds, is again back to that stranded assets carbon, um, carbon bubble. Basically, as you said, pensioners investing in student accommodation, yeah. the Chinese central bank investing in student accommodation, like overcharging. Here, we're going to have pensioners investing in no they're not pensions that's the whole point it's pensions so it'll be young people investing in pensions that are green climate like whatever that means Friendly, yeah. yeah but at the same time we're going to be building a new runway anyway I, i'm repeating myself um yeah so um, i've got loads to say so please come in and say something well a completely disappointing um, turnout for the Heathrow vote that happened last week we've obviously been following the vote no Heathrow campaign so there was uh, hunger strikers who went on hunger strike for 14 days. Roger Hallam, one of those strikers, wrote a piece in The Guardian, I think it went out yesterday, called Wake Up Britain, we, We've Been Betrayed Over Heathrow. And a very strong article where he talks about, he kind of lays it on the line and says that uh, death is binary. Uh, so numbers are important. And what is the number that pushes us over the line? It's the two degrees. Um, and this is going to push us far more towards that we released a, an interview with John Stewart who said that the third runway will produce the same um, CO2 as the economies of Chile or Portugal and it's 700 new flights a year I think I think it's um, yeah so there's we've, we've got a video of Roger Hallam a 45 minute presentation or an hour presentation I strongly recommend starting after about eight minutes because uh, that's when it gets going uh, it's very good. I was there. It's uh, it's hilarious as well. I mean, it's sort of hard work to watch in a way, but He's been trust me, it's worth it. interesting comments. Yeah, it's worth it watching that 45-minute hour video of Roger Hallam at the University of uh, King's College talking about it's the psychology of numbers and the psychology of behavior change. What number or what argument would it take for you to take something very, very serious, mm. seriously? Because it's serious and um, it's bad. He brings a lot of good stuff in it. Um, so here are a couple of other things that have been going on. Um, I noticed in the Sunday Times, I'm calling you straight after, it's going completely mad. Um, in the Sunday Times, they said, 
Boris will be abroad for the vote. Mm. Um, and it really looked like the government was absolutely bricking it. Even though they won by miles and everyone said they would, they were bricking it. Um, and I think what they said was that there was a report that was supposed to come out on Thursday. By the way, today is Thursday. Um, and that was basically going to say that there are limits on how much carbon you can... So it's the Committee on Climate Change or the Climate Change Committee releases this report every few months. And it basically just said things are not good. Uh, we are emitting too much CO2 and we have to dramatically change our lifestyle. That came out today and the vote was on Monday. And again, if it had it been the other way around. But you know what's really funny is virtually nobody reported this, this thing coming out today. And I looked at the report and it was pretty dry. People yeah. are saying, oh, it's dramatic. It sounded more dramatic in the Sunday Times than it was. <laughs> the other funny thing was when I read about the report um, on Sunday, uh, I decided to look up uh, the guy, John Deben, or Lord Deben is his name. His real name is John Selwyn Gummer, famous for those of us who are old enough to remember he gave his daughter a burger during the BSE crisis and had it filmed on TV because he was a conservative uh, cabinet minister, minister for the environment, um, kind of a, an agriculture and green and stuff like that. So his brother is Lord Chadlington, who is friends with oh. um, David Cameron and set up the China-UK fund Revolving Door, um, finance, stuff like that. And Lord Chadlington, his brother, run Huntsworth and lots of other massive marketing uh, firms. Uh, we're talking, these are, these are big money people. So he starts off a select committee inquiry into, so you know how we're doing Brexit, take back control. And so they, you have the Environment Agency. And uh, so in the select committee, they basically say, Michael Gove is in charge of the Environment Department. Um, He's winning plaudits, actually. You know, even George Monbiot is saying, oh, amazing, Michael Gove. Um, but there is this one question, which is, if you have a regulator, then the regulator can say, you have two sides of regulation. One, where you say, this is good, this is bad. The other one is, I'm going to do something bad to you because you've been bad. Mm. The punishment side. and Enforcement. Enforcement. And so, what's his name? Lord Deedon was asked about, in a post-Brexit world... How are we going to have a regulator that actually enforces anything? And the first thing he said was, I set up the Environment Agency, and I'm telling you, it's quite normal for a regulator to end up basically just sitting in a government department and basically doing what they're told. Doing what they're told. And I couldn't believe that a former cabinet minister would say that in that way, especially a Tory like him. Mm. Um, what you mean with the government, as in no independence? Yeah, he said it's terrible. Mm. Um, he said, I value getting, I valued as a minister getting independent um, advice. He said the NGOs, they're really good, but they're coming from a certain place. And he's right, you know, they're all like lefties. Um, and um, so you can't completely trust them as far as he's concerned because, you know, you have to have someone who's genuinely independent. So I thought, okay, yeah, cool. Now, to the very left, there were three people speaking. There was also a woman called Baroness Brown, who's also on the Committee for Climate Change. And then you had Amias Morse, who's in charge of the National Audit Office. And so the subject was, what does it take to be an independent regulator? Mm. And Amias Morse, he basically just said, here's what happens. You write a report and a civil servant guy will tell you, you need to water that down. You know, in some way, they'll basically say you need to water that down. And you've got to turn around and say, no, I'm not going to. That's what makes you independent. So funnily enough, today, it's Thursday, the report came out. I had a look at it. I pressed Control F, Heathrow, never mentioned. Air, it says dairy, air conditioner. Okay, fair enough, air conditioner. That's electricity and stuff like that. It doesn't say airports very many times. Um, 
It's, it says air quality a few times. It's been watered down. Mm. And when I looked up Lord Deben in other databases, I found out, what did I find out? I found, I found out that he is um, in charge of a trade body for private wealth managers. And he said at a summer drinks party last week, he said, there's too much regulation in finance and I will do everything I can to get rid of the regulatory burden because we're overregulated. And he said, this government says... The conservative government we have now. This government claims to be deregulatory, but all I can say is it's really, really got too much regulation going on at the moment. Wow. I'm not making so that So he's up. a deregulator. But it's just so funny. I mean, the irony that... So he's involved, but he was involved in this report... He was the one that said it's not cool that most most regulatory agencies end up being dictated to by government. Morse, the guy from the National Audit Office, says, yeah, you have to really hold your ground. And if you can't do it, then, you know, you are not independent. And then it turns out that this guy who's in charge of the Climate Change Commission is in charge of a lobby group that lobbies to get rid of regulation for finance. And then the full circle happens. You just go, but Philip... Hammond just said he's doing climate bonds, which we all know are total, you know, that's a hoax. Yeah. As, in, as in the climate is definitely getting worse, but these bonds are a distraction. Mm. So you just go, Deben, or Selwyn Gummer, who's, you know, blah, blah, blah. Also, Selwyn, so Selwyn Gummer's, or Lord Deben, the guy from the climate change, his son is Ben Gummer, who used to be um, very close to Theresa May, and his niece, Naomi Gummer, is head of public affairs for Google and used to be a special advisor to Jeremy Hunt when he was media minister as well. So, wow. hardcore revolving door <laughs> up in this piece. Yeah. And so that brings me to the subject of, um, oh, yeah, so I called up um, Bright Blue. So that is a conservative think tank. And at the Conservative Party conference last time, they said, oh, you know, vote blue, get green. Um, they had a tree, didn't they? Is well, it? yeah, and for years, even Cameron did it. And all of these people, they basically said, young people are really concerned about the environment. You know, we need swing voters and Tories to basically just become Tory. So we have to just start looking green. So I noticed that Tory voters, they like animals. They love animals. They were just like, yeah, I love animals. Um, and so Gove is really pushing that stuff. You know, Telegraph, they're just like, yeah, animals, animals, all about the animals. But um, they were, so they set up Bright Blue, which is supposed to be environmental. So I called them up. And I said, Ranjan, real media, that's what I'm talking about. What are you saying about the airports? And they said, um, I've spoke to the director and uh, this one's not for us. Yeah, that's what they said. We've decided this one's not for us. Yeah, and I, I, I part, part of me wanted to say, yeah, but what would you have said anyway? Because you might have an opinion on this subject. Yeah, what yeah. she actually said to me on the phone was, yeah, but the thing is, you know, infrastructure is important and jobs. And I remember thinking, oh, mate. Incredible. So Incredible. She said, we didn't say anything because we're kind of split on this. Mm. Um, and when I looked at their last publication, which was May 2018, like six weeks ago, mm. um, no mention of, uh, you know, airports. They talk about... they talk about. It's a hoax, by the way, the, um, the idea that it's going to create jobs because previous... Is it Terminal 5? It said it was going to create jobs and it's actually reduced the amounts of jobs that it's got. So whatever jobs are created by this third runway would be making up for a deficit that they said would come from other places. So it's, yeah. Well, I mean, I think... And again, and we should also say that the, the guy that the in charge of transport is, is is Chris Grayling, who has 
a very recent history of total failure. And I think people should have amped up the fact that this is a Chris Grayling plan and he planned the vote to come before the report as well. Yeah, He's just I think it, it, it does create jobs, but the point is n- not, you know, it's just not really an argument because mm. they are... Oh, yeah, because the financial structure of Heathrow apparently there's eight layers and it's a massive tax avoidance thing. Uh, on Monday, they vote for it. On Tuesday... Ferrovial, the Spanish company that runs Heathrow, they said, okay, we're going to Amsterdam now. They actually picked up their corporate HQ for Heathrow and they said, we're now moving to Amsterdam because on of Brexit. On Tuesday. On Tuesday, hours after the vote. The vote was on, it was at like incredible. half past 10 in the evening. Yeah. The next morning they said, oh, thank God, like, let's get out of here. Um, does it really get worse than that? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's bright blue, that's um, Heathrow moving. Uh, Greenwash. So obviously everybody, World Cup's on. Watch the video that we've done with Chloe from uh, Dsmog talking about Gazprom, the Greenwash. Um, It's really, really good. And it's important. Yeah. Um, And then there's Shell New. Um, That is the whole story that we've talked about before, which is that Shell knew how much, apparently that they they were contributing to 4% of emissions in the world and that... um, Bangladesh would be flooded. It looks here as though there's also some story about solar power. Um, I can't quite remember what it means, but I think it's basically saying that, um, yeah, solar power, the the few little bits of help that the government were giving, and it really wasn't much to yeah. people who were generating solar power, are about to disappear completely. And so okay. basically the war on solar power continues. <laughs> in order to promote um, everything else. Um, yeah, so there's going to be this um, conference on the, when is it? I think it's on the 17th of July, and it is called Mainstreaming Green Finance. Mm. John Glenn, the city minister, Claire Perry, the green, she's Tory, uh, obviously they're all Tories, um, she's the minister for energy and clean growth. Uh, Sean Kidney, CEO of Climate Bonds Initiative, Lord Stern, who wrote a very famous paper on um, climate change, and Nick Bridge, Special Representative for Climate Change Foreign Office. Basically, they're all Tories, and they're doing this thing called mainstreaming green finance. I think each one of them should be individually custard-pied on their way in and out of that particular operation, because it's just so naughty. Good idea. Um, Obviously, it's not for me to do that, but, um, you know, uh, a green trading hub is what we are. Um, How does it feel? they say? Well, no, that's what I'm saying that they're saying. Uh, they're, they're not saying that. So David White, um, you know what? We're running out of time. We're probably going to go back five minutes there. Um, so David White, we already said David White was good um, and the way in which he talked about the revolving door. It's just normal, completely yeah, normal. Yeah, yeah. And that video is coming out next week. Yeah, it's Strongly be, recommend it. And we're going to release something on the Piper Alpha anniversary. Yeah. Which I'm a little too young to <laughs> remember, but it will be the 30th anniversary. Yeah, and disaster. he talks about the parallels with that in Grenfell. Um, so that's pretty shocking stuff. Um, and then NHS. So all those uh, 600 people, at least, that died, it seems, at Gosport. And they say there were whistleblowers all the way. People were talking about it all the way. And so on Sunday in the Telegraph, Raj Matu, I think he was a heart surgeon at Coventry, he said, it's time for a whistleblower agency. So every time you hear the word whistleblower, I think, hmm, whistleblowers why is it that you can't just tell the truth about what you see at work Mm. i've also been thinking what happens when you're a freelancer apparently today is national freelancer day so what happens if you're at an outsourced 
um, it's far service. More it's far, far more risky for you to speak out. Well, the thing is that under the Public Interest Disclosure Act, PEDA, that is the kind of whistleblower protection sort of legislation that got mm. brought in. And by is it's not even a proper, I mean, it's a law, but it wasn't brought in by the government. It was brought in as a private member's bill. But basically under that, you've got to report what you see at work if it's dodgy. And then afterwards, once you've reported it to your line manager, you report it to a, an authority. And if you lose your job over it, then you can prove that at an employment tribunal. Mm. Then you get some kind of compensation. But what happens if you don't actually have an employer because it's an agency that sent you to work for Capita and yeah. Capita have a contract with the government. If you, what do you tell your agency? Because your agency are going to say, mate, you're on a zero hours contract. Yeah. We don't have to hire you tomorrow. And we're getting fees from these guys. Yeah. So, so if you, so if you see it during your five minutes there, or let's say you're there for three days and you see something really dodgy, then where do you stand? Mm. Where does the country stand when you see something really dodgy? I think, you, you know, I mean, in terms of protection, mm. you never had any protection in the first place. So in that sense, you've got nothing to lose. And so in terms of compensation, so it's all structured in such a limited way that, you know, nobody can say very much yeah. about what you lose, what you gain. But then there's just no accountability at all and the society suffers. I think that's the idea of the whistleblowing agency. This goes to the heart of why that needs to exist in this gospel example, because we just mentioned enforcement. So regulations are great, but if no one's enforcing them, they don't matter. Um, whistleblowers are great, but if no one's listening to them, then, you know, that doesn't matter either. So it's kind of how do you ensure that you're taking care of those things? Because without without those things, it's not going to work. And as you said, there were people speaking out and it went nowhere. Yeah. Um, I wonder if we need, I hate to say, we need a technological solution to this. <laughs> but, I mean, people can WhatsApp each other. I mean, people want anonymity. Hmm. for this stuff um, but at the same time if they're only there for a bit how do we share information about this stuff I mean you know when we've got things like eBay which allow for ratings you know and all these other things where you can just it's all about your opinion about something um, you've got a glass door that's interesting that yeah. website where it, they talk about what it's like working somewhere useful yeah I think um, you know so yeah you may not have noticed this but I'm sort of in the mood to find dirt on companies and work out what they're doing to um, cover up the obvious crimes. You know, when you say, oh, this is really dodgy and it's happening, people generally say, oh, yeah, everybody knew that. And I'm thinking, yeah, I know. But I'm, all right, fine. But, like, you know, I'm looking for yeah, the evidence here. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Why? Because then that way at least maybe we can, like, move on. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, obviously everybody closes ranks and everything just gets covered up. But, like... Yeah, Possibly it's, it's someone else could hope to improve things a bit. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it can be very negative when you come up against that because I've definitely experienced that when working on certain things. Oh, yeah, obviously, they're all they're all at it. <laughs> yeah, and it, obviously it's true. Yeah. But... There is a total truth in that, but also how do you turn that into some kind of action? Because, it, yeah, that kind of just blurs it into nothing. Yeah, yeah, don't bother. Well, it's disempowering, Cam. Mm, and we know. don't like that. Um, no, although I suppose everyone has a tendency to do that from time to time. Um, yeah, um, seen any good books recently? Going to see anything interesting culturally apart from the football? <laughs> apart from the football. I'm going to see Roy Ayers next week. I bought my tickets today. There Jazz Cafe. Left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's my uh, friend's birthday, but um, my my partner and I have wanted to watch it, watch see Roy Ayers for a while and haven't, so we're going. Yeah, have you seen uh, much Roy Ayers on YouTube? 
Yes. Have you seen that kind of like sort of not dance off, but have you seen that thing where he's, I'm sure it's a jazz cafe, probably 20 years ago. Oh, right. It's this thing where there's a guy who's like pretty fat, who's, um, I think is playing that. uh, Sorry, guys, I'm just going to call it like the xylophone, but like whatever it is, what what does he play? I think that's. Anyway, he's he's smacking these things anyway. And so there's him and he basically just get somebody else to come on and they both play at roughly the same time or they pick up the pieces and just go blah, blah, blah. Amazing. I mean, it was kind of like a kind of, I don't know, xylophone <laughs> I've off. Seen, I've seen a good few uh, few live sessions with Roy um, play, playing with the same energy regardless of the makeup or the amount of crowd in front of him. Hmm. So it's going to be special. Cool. What about you? Are you up to anything? I think on Saturday I'm going to go and see this play called Machinal. Machinal like machine, but Machinal. Based on a play by, I think, a woman called Susan... No, it is a play by a woman called Susan Treadwell, who apparently was a woman in America in the 1920s, and it's the only thing that ever got published during her lifetime. But essentially, she's a kind of... I suppose she's a sort of Marxist, feminist playwright who is a bit of a precursor to Harold Pinter and other like huge playwrights. Apparently, her style is really, really good, the dialogue and everything, yeah. but it's from the 20s. And it's um, talking about how America is just a machine, a factory in a machine, something like that. Sounds good. Um, Yeah, and I picked up a couple of books. One called The Ashtray about the man who denied reality by Errol Morris, my favorite, well, my favorite, but a a, a guy who makes documentaries. And he made the documentary The Fog of War about Robert McNamara, which I went to see at the cinema five times. Okay. Um, Yeah. It must have been good. Yeah, well, actually, I wanted to see it because the guy, Robert McNamara, used to be in charge of the World Bank, and I had to get the DVD in order to get the extras to actually see anything about the World Bank. Right. But it was nice to learn a little bit about him. Uh, Yeah, Philip Glass soundtrack. Um, The guy was in charge of the Defense Department. Wow. You know, like Rumsfeld in in the 60s, during Vietnam. Right. So he was kind of like the original technocratic, um, I'm going to lie to everybody Mm. because it's for my country. Um. I'm reading uh, Secret Affairs at the moment. I'm, I'm, I've slept on it, but I am uh, well into it now by Mark Curtis, which is to do with Britain's collusion with radical Islam. But yeah, all to do with the ways that Britain conducted its foreign policy and who they sided with at certain times. And how Yeah, it's really, really good. It's really, really good. I mean, forensic, but yeah, I so recommended. Mm, shifting loyalties. Nice. Um, cool. Well... That's pretty good. Let's do this. See you next week. Bye.